1: Into a one world communist government. Welcome, useless eaters, to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome.
0: The affirmative task
1: we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create
0: uh, uh, a new world order, public policy, but itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop.
1: In the American student practice of organizing secret societies as preparation for entering the great world, Two conditions were essential. Secrecy was first, a protection against authority, particularly in the consideration of religious questions in the speculative manner, as well as a barrier against the frivolous, the curious, and the idle who would challenge or demean the entire enterprise. The emergence of individuality and cognitive daring was permitted by privacy, and secrecy actually encouraged intellectual dissent. When discussions became more personal, confronting the young men's individual doubts and fears about themselves and about women, privacy became even more vital. Withdrawal behind the closed doors was, in such circumstances, eminently reasonable. Such groups had no public functions. Their role was to provide an environment within which their members could consider separate, sometimes clashing and certainly private views without public explanation. In organizing fraternities in the 1820s and 1830s, which they called and were secret societies, these students were also going against the political temper of their times. The nation had largely embraced the Jacksonian idea of this era, everyone equal before God, equal before one another. But the collegians had perhaps known too much equality with the same class program the same class subjects, same professors, the same prayers, the same drab cubicles in uniform dormitories. In the very decades of the Age of Jackson, these students clearly preferred the privileges of secrecy and club life to equality before the Creator, and were inspired and energized by the very exclusiveness which this Jacksonian temper rejected. However paradoxical it may seem, They also came into being during the anti-Freemason fervor in the United States, which excoriated secret societies in general, and the Masons in particular. A protest and a scandal of which the students cannot have been ignorant, and yet they forged ahead nonetheless. Even secret societies, which hide neither their aims nor their members' names, still take extraordinary efforts to forbid disclosure of their rituals. Given this mindset, the most vicious form of disloyalty, according to the principles of the secret society, is disclosure of the ritualistic features of the order to outsiders. Notably, these manifestations of secrecy were intertwined with the Enlightenment. Language about being enlightened and at the same time secretive about the commitment to the Enlightenment was used subconsciously by Freemasons to identify their secret society with the highest aspirations of the new secular culture. But this only reinforced the Masonic dedication to secrecy that was as much metaphorical as it was real. The benefit that most people were incapable of or hostile to the new culture of enlightenment was widespread both within and without the lodges. Indeed, Kant himself carefully qualified his description of the age, As he ruefully observed, ours is not an enlightened age. The attitude was one that Phi Beta Kappa in America, founded by newly minted Freemasons who were students at the College of William and Mary, and was to pass on in barely diluted form to its successor institutions, the Yale Senior Societies. All right, guys, this is The Order of Death, Part 2. Months ago, I did Part 1. And that darn show was almost an hour and a half just pumped full of facts about Skull and Bones and their members. And this time, we're going to take up where we left off. But this time, we're not only going to be talking about Skull and Bones, we'll mention a few of the other select senior societies at Yale and a few other colleges as well. So as you heard there from the excerpt from the book Skulls and Keys by Skull and Bones member David Allen Richards, Phi Beta Kappa was America's first fraternity, and it was founded by Freemasons. Now, there's a disagreement among scholars as to whether or not the Bavarian Illuminati survived its banishment. Nevertheless, the group had been quite successful in attracting members and had allied itself with the extensive Masonic network there in Germany. The Illuminati was publicly founded May 1st, 1776 at the University of Ingolstadt by Adam Weishaupt, professor of canon law. It was a very learned society, and Weishaupt drew the earliest members of his new order from among his students. On December 5, 1776, students at the William and Mary College founded a secret society called Phi Beta Kappa. A second chapter was formed at Yale in 1780. The anti-Masonic movement in the United States during the 1820s held groups such as Phi Beta Kappa in a bad light. Because of pressure, the society went public. This is noted by some researchers as the direct cause of the appearance of Yale's Order of Skull and Bones. In the Cyclopedia of Fraternities, in a genealogical chart of the General Greek Letter College fraternities in the United States, It shows Phi Beta Kappa as the parent of all fraternal systems in the American higher education. There is only one side lineal descendant, the Yale chapter of 1780. The line then continues to skull and bones in 1832 and on through the other only at Yale senior societies, such as Scroll and Key and Wolf's Head. Phi Beta Kappa is the first three Greek letters for love of wisdom The Helmsman of Life. A Skull Homophone is Skull with a C. A quick and gliding boat and part of Skull and Bones' first nomenclature. Now, oddly enough, my son, he is on a rowing team. And they use boats they call the Skull Boats with a C, of course. And they have the cross oars, the paddles, which they say are the bones, Skull and Bones. John Robeson, a professor of natural philosophy at Edinburgh University in Scotland and a member of a Freemason Lodge, said that he was asked to join the Illuminati. After a study, he concluded that the purposes of the Illuminati were not for him. In 1798, he published the famous book Proofs of a Conspiracy. An association has been formed for the express purpose of rooting out all the religious Establishments and overturning all the existing governments. The leaders would rule the world with uncontrollable power, while all the rest would be employed as tools of the ambition of their unknown superiors. Proofs of a conspiracy was sent to George Washington. Responding to the sender of the book with a letter, the president said he was aware of the Illuminati and that they were in America. He felt that the Illuminati had a diabolical tenet and that their object was a separation of the people from their government. In Proofs of Conspiracy, Robeson described the ceremony of the initiation of the regent degree in Illuminism. In it, a skeleton is pointed out to him, the initiate, at the feet of which are laid a crown and a sword. He is asked whether that is the skeleton of a king, a nobleman, or a beggar. As he cannot decide... The president of the meeting says to him, The character of being a man is the only one that is important. This is essentially the same as the writing in the Skull and Bones Temple, Were, war, der, Thor, were wiser, better, odr Kaiser, ob arm, ob reich, I'm toad, gleich, which reads, Who is the fool, who the wise man, beggar or king, whether poor or rich? All's the same in death. Is the Order of the Skull and Bones part of the Illuminati? That was an excerpt from Fleshing Out Skull and Bones. On January 1st, 1824, envisioning trade opportunities, Samuel Russell established Russell and Company with a fleet of clipper ships. He acquired opium in Turkey and then sold it in the expanding China market and then purchased Chinese silk porcelain, and tea. On June 28, 1832, at Yale University, William H. Russell, Samuel's first cousin, co-founded the Order of Skull and Bones with Alfonso Taft, the father of William Howard Taft, who later became the U.S. President and then the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1856, they incorporated the order as the Russell Trust Association, with Daniel C. Gilman as treasurer and Russell as president. Many members' families acquired their fortunes through drug trafficking-Coffin, Sloan, Taft, Bundy, Payne, Whitney, and others. The Barings Bank financed the British based Peninsular and Oriental Steamship Company, which carried opium to China. The Barings and the Lehman Brothers invested in the clipper trade from the time of the American Revolution through the Civil War, trading cotton and slaves. That was Deanna Spingola. The Society had been founded in 1832. The conception seems to have been that of the 1833 valedictorian, class orator, and secretary of Phi Beta Kappa, William Huntington Russell. A little bit of trivia here. Charles Taze Russell was the nephew of the Skull and Bones co-founder, and he is also known as the man who created the Jehovah's Witnesses, which spawned out of his International Bible Students Association. Now, he was also known as one of the first American Zionists. And up until 2021 of last year, He was buried right beside a Freemason Lodge, a Scottish Rite Freemason Lodge. And when I'm saying right next to it, I mean right next to it, there are pictures of this. And oddly enough, his memorial, his gravestone, was a large pyramid. Now, since then, it's been removed for damage, allegedly. That was from freemasonry.bcy.ca. Now, Charles Taze Russell was said to be close to many Masons, but not an official member. He once was quoted as saying, Our Masonic friends have it down very fine. I do not know where they got it so well. I have often wondered where they found out so many of the secrets of our high and accepted order of Masonry. A lot of people say that the Jehovah's Witnesses were based on Freemasonry, much like the Mormons. Former President William Howard Taft, whose father co-founded the order, was also president of the Unitarian Association in his time. Eight Tafts have been members of the Order of Skull and Bones. The society was known to its members as the Eulogian Club. Eulogia is Greek for a blessing and is applied in ecclesiastical usage to the object blessed. There was even an adopted language, for the members as well. Indeed, Bones took root so firmly that in 1842, when it was just a decade old, a member of the class of 1844 wrote in touching ignorance The Skull and Bone Society is of quite an ancient origin. It is one of the most secret associations in the college. That was from Yale Alumni Magazine. Now, that would go along with it being just a continuance of one of the orders, possibly the Illuminati, from Bavaria. The order was incorporated in 1856 under the name Russell Trust, as we said before. By special act of the state legislature in 1943, its trustees are exempted from the normal requirement of filing corporate reports with the Connecticut Secretary of State. As of last year, according to Business Insider, The Russell Trust had $4,129,936 in its trust. The most recent members that I could tell you, because their list is secret, they do not give it away unless it leaks, is Steve Mnuchin, who I believe worked for Goldman Sachs, and he was the Treasury Secretary under Trump, and Austin Goolsby, who was the advisor, I believe, economic advisor to Obama. As of 1978, all business of the Russell Trust was handled by its loan trustee, Brown Brothers Harriman partner, John B. Madden, Jr. Madden started with Brown Brothers Harriman in 1946 under senior partner Prescott Bush, George H.W. Bush's father. Also skull and bones, of course. A world fraternity was needed sustained by a deep and broad program of education, according to the method. Such a fraternity could not immediately include all men, but it could unite the activities of certain kinds of men, regardless of their racial or religious beliefs or the nations in which they dwelt. These were the men of towardness, the sons of tomorrow, whose symbol was a blazing sun rising over the mountains of the east, It was inevitable that the Orders of Fraternity should sponsor world education. The program included a systematic expansion of existing institutions and the enlargement of their spheres of influence. Slowly, the Orders of Universal Reformation faded from public attention, and in their places appeared the Orders of the World Brotherhood. Everything possible was done to prevent the transitions from being obvious, Even history was falsified to make certain sequences of activity unrecognizable. The shift of emphasis never gave the impression of abruptness, and the motion appeared as a dawning of social consciousness. The most obvious clues to the secret activity have been the prevailing silence about the origin and impossibility of filing the missing parts in the records of the 17th and 18th century fraternal orders. The orders of fraternity were attached by slender and almost invisible threads to the parent project. Like earlier schools of the Mysteries, these fraternities were not in themselves actual embodiments of the esoteric associations, but rather instruments to advance certain objects of the divine plan. That was Manly P. Hall from Masonic Orders and Fraternities. Just a quick glance at the S&B Rituals, And I do highly recommend, if you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to that one, and then come back to this one. Bones meetings are held at the tomb, which is a two-story building without windows, and whose walls on the outside are covered with ivy. That's where the term Ivy League came from. The tomb is located to the east of the New Haven Green, about 100 yards from the federal courthouse, The Yale University owns the major part of the land downtown in New Haven. Almost all of the university buildings are interconnected by a series of underground tunnels, so visiting bonesmen never need to approach the tombs from the streets. The bones initiation ritual, 194 degrees, went like this. New man placed in coffin, carried into central part of the building. New man chanted over and reborn into society, removed from coffin and given a robe with symbols on it. A bone with his name on it is tossed into the bone heap at the start of every meeting. Then initiates plunge into a mud pile naked. New members of Skull and Bones are assigned secret names by which fellow bonesmen will forever know them. Some bonesmen receive traditional names, denoting function or existential status. Others are the chosen beneficiaries of names that their bones predecessors wish to pass on. The leftover initiates choose their own names. The name Long Devil is assigned to the tallest member. Boaz goes to any member who is a varsity captain. Many of the chosen names are drawn from literature, Hamlet, Uncle Remus, from religion and from myth. The banker Louis Laffam passed on his name, Sancho Panza, to the political adviser Tex McCrary. Avril Harriman was Thor. Henry Luce of Time Magazine was Baal. McGeorge Bundy was Odin. The name Magog is traditionally assigned to the incoming Bonesman, deemed to have had the most sexual experiences, and Gog goes to the new member with the least sexual experiences. William Howard Taft and Robert Taft were Magogs, so interestingly enough was George H.W. Bush. That was from Alexandra Robbins. She is a Scroll and Key member and has written the book Secrets of the Tomb. Many people say that she is an insider who was hired to write a book to take the emphasis off of Anthony C. Sutton's information on the book he wrote beforehand about the Order of Skull and Bones. A grandfather clock is presented to each knight. They call them knights once they become official members. A clock is presented to each knight upon initiation and stays with him throughout his life as a memento of what is called the Bones Experience. The Guggenheim Foundation, like the Rhodes Scholarship Program, granted fellowships, agreeing to fund 20 United States history students who were seeking doctoral degrees. These students, after indoctrination, formed the nucleus of the American Historical Association, which was founded by Andrew D. White, a member of the Order of Skull and Bones, also known as the Brotherhood of Death. Such an organization manufactures a history commiserate with government and corporate objectives while concealing the hideous details of some of the most horrendous historical events. Therefore, individuals need to evaluate what they believe about historical events, consider where they obtain that information, and compare it to what is occurring now. Accurate history is prologue, whereas false history legitimizes the activities that many government officials are perpetrating against the citizens of their nations. Do those citizens under deceptive circumstances enjoy freedom? Or are their governments incrementally imposing tyranny at home while engaging in terrorism abroad? If governments can lie about or conceal their past, then they certainly can engage in deception regarding contemporary circumstances. Again, that was Deanna Spingola. Now we know from the last episode and from Anthony C. Sutton's work that Johns Hopkins was another organization that was formed by the Skull and Bones. And if you don't believe me, here is an official government website, the ncbi.nlm.nih.gov. Yale, Skull and Bones, and the beginnings of Johns Hopkins. I won't go into detail about that because we talked a little bit about it in the first episode, but this will be in the show notes if you want to look into it yourself. Let's talk a little bit about the infamous Hegelian dialectic which Anthony C. Sutton does talk about a lot, and he said that that's the way the Skull and Bones alumni work. But That's really the way the whole government works. Oftentimes, a problem is presented, we the people react, and then we crave for the solution from GovCorp, and they're happy to give it because they had that in mind to begin with. And actually, Hegel didn't come up with the Hegelian dialectic. He actually talked about Concrete, abstract, and absolute, but thesis, antithesis, synthesis actually originated with Johann Fichte, another father of education, if you will. Impersonal reason, having outside itself neither a base on which it can pose itself, nor an object which it can oppose itself, nor a subject with which it can compose itself is forced to turn head over heels in posing itself, opposing itself, and composing itself. Position, opposition, composition. Or to speak Greek, we have thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. Imposing itself, opposing itself, and composing itself, in formulating itself as thesis, antithesis, synthesis, or yet, in affirming itself, negating itself, and negating its negation. But once it has managed to pose itself as a thesis, this thesis, this thought opposed to itself, splits up into two contradictory thoughts, the positive and the negative, the yes and the no. The struggle between these two antagonistic elements comprised in the antithesis constitutes the dialectical movement, the yes becoming no, the no becoming yes, the yes becoming both yes and no, the no becoming both no and yes. The contraries balance, neutralize, paralyze each other. This thought splits up once again into two contradictory thoughts, which in turn fuse into a new synthesis. Of this travail is born a group of thoughts, This group of thoughts follows the same dialectic movement as the simple category and has a contradictory group as antithesis. Of these two groups of thoughts is born a new group of thoughts, which is the antithesis of them. That was Karl Marx, obviously a big fan of Johann Fichte and Hegel. But Anthony C. Sutton said, Revolution is always recorded as a spontaneous event by the politically or economically deprived against an autocratic state. Never in Western textbooks will you find the evidence that revolutions need finance, and the source of the finance in many cases trace back to Wall Street. And he wrote that great trilogy about FDR and Wall Street, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler. And that got him kicked out of academia, out of the Hoover Institute, and more. Now, one of the mottos of the Skull and Bones is Memento Mori. Remember that you have to die. Room B in the Skull and Bones tomb is called 322. It is the sanctum sanctorum of the temple. Its distinguishing feature is a facsimile of the Bones pin. We've all seen the Skull and Bones emblem handsomely inlaid in the black marble hearth, just below the mantle. And also inlaid in marble is the motto, "Rari quippe Bone. The motto is said to come from the passage by Juvenal. Good men forsooth are scarce. There are hardly as many as there are gates of the Thebes or mouths of the rich Nile. Now when you're going through the different degrees in Freemasonry, there are several that have Bones or skull and bones symbolism. This is from the Midnight Freemasons, so this is the cookie cutter version. Is this the exoteric version or is this the esoteric version? You never know with these guys. The skull's imagery is quite antique. P.D. Newman writes of the ritual of years long past where it is referred to as the bone box, which holds the key or the pass it describing the skull as a box of bones or teeth and which has the past because it is represented by the human tongue. Even in the oldest operative Masonic lodge ever discovered in Pompeii, Italy, which dates to circa 79 CE, was found a tile relief featuring, wait for it, a skull. Then he goes on to say, Brothers, the skull and the crossbones is not evil. I'm sorry some of us feel this way. It is taught to you in the first degree and overwhelmingly in the third degree. If we've forgotten that, perhaps we need to reread the lectures. It is the symbol of your mortality. Now, just a little something I noticed. There are 22 bones in the skull, and there are 22 paths on the tree of life in Kabbalah. Of course, we know that Kabbalah is a huge influence on Freemasonry. Artist Elizabeth Stuckey has commented on the mask and the skull in modern art and the symbolic meaning. She says, The skull equals mortality, unmasked. The opposite of the mask is the skull. The face of the person is a fleshy skin worn between the two. People who deny the person as made in the image of God directly and individually created and loved by Him will seek either of these exits to being truly human. The mask, which covers the mortal man, or the skull, which is left after mortal man has departed. Primitive minds who have not yet found God and the sophisticates who have rejected him desire the mask and the skull. Um, Another thing I just ran into when I was looking into this information, something I didn't know about. There's actually a Skull and Bones chapter at the University of Utah and he was founded in 1909, and that's from the Daily Utah Chronicle. Also, there is a Skull and Bones chapter at Penn State, founded in 1912. You can find out about that at skullandbones.org. It makes me wonder if there are more chapters than those. I mean, that's a long time ago, 1909, 1912, and I've never heard anyone mention that. Looking a little bit more at the influence of Skull and Bones, Johns Hopkins' first president and co-founder was Daniel C. Gilman, or Daniel Coit Gilman, of the three individuals who incorporated the Russell Trust, the Order of Skull and Bones. It was the first American university to apply the German university model developed by Wilhelm von Humboldt and Friedrich Sliermacher. Gilman incorporated both the John F. Slater Fund which later became the Rockefeller Foundation and Rockefeller's General Education Board, which took over U.S. Medical Education Board, which took over U.S. Medical Education. Rockefeller gave his foundation $100 million in its first year of operation. 1913, the elite transferred their funds into tax-exempt foundations. Similar to taking money from one pocket and putting it into another pocket, to escape taxes, and to further grind the face of the poor by controlling and directing domestic and foreign policy. And once again, that was Deanna Spingola, Really good author. She's got a trilogy on the elite that's just fantastic, especially the third book, and these are humongous books. And we'll look at the infamous Bush connection. Everyone knows that George W. Bush... And John Kerry were Skull and Bones members because that came up when they were running against each other, and I believe Tim Russert asked about that, and someone else asked George W. Bush. Of course, they just kind of uh, said, we can't talk about it, it's secret. Uh, Prescott Bush, the grandfather of George W., father of H.W., was the first member. There's been nine members of the Bush family in all, George Jr., James, Jonathan, and more. As we mentioned before, George H.W.'s name for Skull and Bones was Magog. Magog is the name of a nation, probably some Scythian or Tartar tribe descended from Japheth. They are described as skilled horsemen and expert in the use of the bow. Magog is the son of Japheth, son of Noah, Genesis 10:2). Later, this name came to denote a region, Ezekiel 38:2). Magog is often mentioned in conjunction with Gog, and Gog is the name of the Reubenite, 1 Chronicles 5.4, but later also the name of a certain prince of Rosh, Meshech and Tubal, literally the chief prince of the occupied zone that is the world, Ezekiel 38, the place of Gog, the agent of Gog, a city in southern Quebec in eastern Canada. George H.W. Bush was the first ambassador to China after Nixon and Rockefeller pulled their shenanigans and worked their trade deals, which really went a long way to taking so many American jobs and destroying so many American industries. Is uh, the free market worth it when it destroys your country? Many other Skull & Bones members were also ambassadors to other countries. Again, we learned through our work on looking into the Pilgrim Society that that's one way these guys really get these deals done in other countries. They have their agent working directly with the leaders of government and business in these foreign lands. Now, from 2009, I see this headline in the New York Times, Geronimo's heirs sue secret Yale society over his skull. Of course, I'm not going to pay for it. It's behind a paywall. But I did find... Some more links, and it says here, give me just a second, this is NPR, this is 2009 as well, Mystery of the Bones, Geronimo's Missing Skull. For decades, mystery has surrounded an elite secret society at Yale called the Order of Skull and Bones. One of the organization's most storied legends involves the skull of Apache warrior Geronimo, who died in 1909 after two decades as a prisoner of war at Fort Sill in Oklahoma. As the story goes, nine years after Geronimo's death, Skull and Bones members, who were stationed at the army outpost, dug up the warrior's grave and stole his skull, as well as some bones and other personal relics. They then sprinted the remains away to New Haven, Connecticut, and allegedly stashed the skull at the Society Clubhouse, the Skull and Bones' tomb. To make matters even more intriguing, legend has it that the grave-robbing posse included Prescott Bush, the father of H.W. and grandfather of George W. All this is speculative. Skull and Bones members swear an oath to never reveal what goes on inside the tomb. But author Mark Wortman says that when he was at Yale's Sterling Library researching the Millionaire's Unit, his book about young men from the university who flew during World War I, he stumbled upon a letter that seemed to confirm the rumor. Written from one bonesman to another, the letter which dated 1918 read, The skull of the worthy Geronimo the Terrible, exhumed from its tomb at Fort Sill by your club, and the knight's Hafner is now safe inside the tomb, together with his well-worn femurs, bit and saddle horn. Now, 20 descendants of Geronimo have filed a suit against Skull and Bones, Yale University, and members of the U.S. government, including Barack Obama, calling for the return of their ancestors' remains from New Haven, Fort Seal, and wherever else they may be found. Former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark, who represents the Geronimo family, says that Geronimo made it very clear, even before his surrender, that he wanted to be in the Apache lands of southwestern New Mexico. Well, guess what? The family lost the suit, and they never got anywhere with it, but what do you expect when you go up against such powerful forces? Now, George W. Bush was also a member of Skull and Bones. Allegedly, he didn't even take an official name. He just kept the name temporary, so that leads me to believe that he didn't care that much about the society maybe because his father was already powerful he came from a powerful family and so he didn't have to respect the influence and the prestige that skull and bones gave him or maybe he just didn't care for it but i don't believe that because when he got elected he appointed 11 skull and bones members it says here george w bush has appointed 11 Fellow Bonesmen to Government Jobs, Evan Griffith-Galbraith, Advisor to the U.S. Mission to NATO, William Henry Donaldson, Chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, George Herbert Walker III, U.S. Ambassador to Hungary, Jack Edwin McGregor, Member of the Advisory Board of the St. Lawrence Seaway Development Corporation, Victor Henderson-Ash, member of the Board of Directors of the Federal National Mortgage Association, Roy Leslie Austin, U.S. Ambassador to Trinidad and Tobago, Robert Davis McCallum, Jr., Associate Attorney General, Rex Cowdery, Associate Director of the White House's National Economic Council, Edward McNally, Sr., Associate Counsel to the President and General Counsel to the Office of Homeland Security. David Batshaw Wiseman, an attorney in the Justice Department's Civil Division, and James Emanuel Bosberg, an associate judge on the Superior Court of the District of Columbia. Now, when H.W., H.W., the father, died, I just happened to read this, a 21-gun salute and a rendition of Hail to the Chief greeted former President George H.W. Bush after the military plane carrying his survivors, arrived at Joint Base Andrews in Maryland, just outside Washington. Now check this out. A formation of Navy sailors and Air Force personnel stood at attention as the plane touched down at, guess what time? 322 Eastern. 322 Skull and Bones. That was from USA Today. And also talking about the George W. Bush era and the War on Terror, a guy I seem to mention every episode here lately, Robert Kagan, the co-founder of PNAC, Project for a New American Century, along with Bill Kristol, is also a Skull and Bones member. Of course, his wife is Victoria Newland. He's a real big deal at the Brookings Institute, which works hand-in-hand with the Council on Foreign Relations and others. So the group that said America needs a new Pearl Harbor to beef up its tech was co-chaired by a member of the Order of Skull and Bones. and Then you had George W.'s 11 appointees. Now, because the George Bush family had so many members in the Skull and Bones, nine in total, they even beat the Tafts, they always get most of the attention. And they're seen as conservative or Republican, even though most people who really do research realize that George H.W. was not conservative. But, you have to remember that Prescott Bush was a supporter of the precursor to Planned Parenthood. I believe it was called the Birth Control League. And he was a eugenicist, as well as many others of his time. And he worked for one of the most powerful Democrats in the history of the country, Avril Harriman, who inherited the railroad fortune from his father. Also, you have John Forbes Carey. So John... Forbes Carey is an elite Boston Brahmin, as they say, on both sides. And I saw something else that was kind of interesting. So Henry J. Hines was the ketchup tycoon. He was a member of the Food Administration before it was the Food and Drug Administration. He was the second cousin to Frederick Trump, the Trump family patriarch. Now, his either son or grandson was the first husband to John Kerry's wife, Teresa. And he himself was a member of the steering committee of Bilderberg. So John Kerry, still a Skull and Bones member, once a Skull and Bones member, always a Skull and Bones member, has been around to represent his boys ever since the Vietnam War, after he came back from the Vietnam War, I imagine. He's in the Obama administration, as like the climate czar or whatever. Let's look at a few other important members. Chauncey Depew, president of the New York Central Railroad System and a United States senator from New York. Juan Terry Tripp, founder and CEO of Pan American World Airways or Pan Am. Joseph Gibson Hoyt, the first chancellor of Washington University in St. Louis. Supreme Court Justices Morrison R. Waite and Potter Stewart. James Jesus Angleton, the mother of the Central Intelligence Agency, Henry Stimson, U.S. Secretary of War, Robert A. Lovett, U.S. Secretary of Defense, William B. Washburn, Governor of Massachusetts, and I mentioned him earlier, Henry Luce, founder and publisher of Time Life, Fortune, and Sports Illustrated magazines. Also a big CFR member. Harold Stanley, co-founder of Morgan Stanley. Percy Rockefeller, director of Brown Brothers Harriman, Standard Oil, and Remington Arms. Charles Edward Adams, director of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Albert DeSilver, co-founder of the American Civil Liberties Union. George Leslie Harrison, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. E. Roland Harriman, co-founder of Harriman Brothers & Company. William P. Bundy, State Department Liaison for the Bay of Pigs Invasion, brother of McGeorge Bundy. Rex William Cowdery, Acting Director, National Institute of Mental Health. You know, the Cowderys were related to the Smiths, to Joseph Smith and his family. I don't know if it's the same Cowderys, but I wouldn't doubt it. Now, Robert A. Lovett was Truman's Secretary of Defense. He shared the Bones membership with Prescott Bush. He was very friendly with Harvey Hollister Bundy, who served with Lovett in Truman's War Cabinet and was the father of future Bonesman McGeorge Bundy. The Bundys are connected to Skull & Bones, CIA, CFR, the Ford and the Carnegie Foundations. Many have called Lovett the architect of the Cold War. Evan G. Galbraith was investment banker and U.S. ambassador to France under Reagan. David McCullough was a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and author. Angela Warnick-Buckdahl was class 1994, a senior rabbi at New York's Central Synagogue. Another interesting thing related to the Bonesmen, they passed the Land Grant Act back in the day. And because we had Bones insiders in the government, they were able to scoop up all the land that the government had set aside for colleges in the state of Connecticut. So they got all the land at once because they were insiders. Check out this generic explanation for how they came up with the Skull and Bones logo. This is in Skulls and Keys. The young men in number 122 North College cared more about the Raison d'etre of their society than its name, and seemed not to have selected one when Wood, as secretary, was asked to post a notice of a meeting in a customary place. He says, When I wrote the first notice for a meeting of the club to be put up on the side of the chapel door, he recalled with italicized emphasis, I sketched over the notice a skull and crossbones, The thought of the moment simply to attract attention and make sensation among outsiders, which it did very decidedly and excited a great deal of talk among the students. The skull and bones had no real significance whatsoever. I put this device on every subsequent notice during the year of 1832 to 1833, and so it came to be a permanent badge of the club. Now we'll get a little bit into some of the other... Senior societies there at Yale and other places. Some call it the Ancient Eight Consortium, which includes the seven other original societies at Yale Skull and Bones, Scroll and Key, Wolf's Head, Book and Snake, Elihu, Berzelius, St. Elmo's, and Mace and Chain. Now, Scroll and Key, they file under the Kingsley Trust and they're actually worth more than twice what Skull and Bones are, 10,771,828. The Scroll and Key Society is a secret society that was established by John Addison Porter at Yale University in 1842. It rivals Skull and Bones and is one of several senior secret societies at Yale. Founding keysmen included... Theodore Runyon, 1842, Governor of New Jersey. Isaac Heister, a distinguished U.S. Congressman. Leonard Case, founder of Western Reserve University. Cornelius Vanderbilt, the Millionaire. Fareed Zakaria, CNN and the Board of Directors of the Council on Foreign Relations. James Stillman Rockefeller, CIA Director. Huntington D. Sheldon, Cyrus Vance, Benjamin Spock, Gary Trudeau, Mortimer Proctor, Dean Acheson, Secretary of State and member of the 1915 delegation. We'll go on to Elihu. Elihu says here was the fourth secret society at Yale, founded in 1903. It says it's similar in charter and function as Skull and Bones and Wolf's Head. Elihu favors privacy over secrecy. It was founded as the first non-secret senior society. The society's building, located at 175 Elm Street, has windows, though they are blinded. Like other societies, the organization's building is typically closed to non-members. It takes its name from Yale founder, Elihu Yale. Now, this one has a Jewish flair, for sure. You can kind of tell by the name Elihu, even though I don't know if he was actually Jewish. Uh, Jacques Leslie was appointed. I think he may have been a lawyer from New York, if I'm not mistaken. The most famous, probably, Connecticut Senator Joseph Lieberman. Journalist Jacques Leslie, as I mentioned. Journalist Jacob Weisberg. I think all those guys are Jewish. Uh, Sir John Templeton Head one of the largest mutual fund companies, Robert S. Simple, Jr., Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, Jim Amos, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, John Pepper, Jr., former Procter & Gamble CEO, Sheila Jackson Lee, U.S. Congresswoman, Peter Beinhart, editor of The New Republic, David Dellinger, activist, member of the Chicago 7 Paul Monet, author and activist, Alexander Garvin, urban planning authority, Stuart Symington, U.S. Senator, Sam Waterston, actor of law and order, Robert Kaiser, former managing editor, Washington Post, are some of the more famous members. Mason Chain, its regular meeting place, also called a tomb, A 190 year old six bedroom colonial style house in downtown New Haven was salvaged from Benedict Arnold's home in New Haven and is a New Haven historical landmark. The Society's alumni trust, the Knights Trust Foundation, owns and operates the tomb. The Society was founded by Thornton Marshall with the help of a poet and a Yale professor, Robert Penn Warren, in 1956. Past faculty advisors to Mason Chain include Charlie Hill, a former senior advisor to Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, and John Wilkinson, a former vice president of Yale. Brasilius, filed under Colony Foundation, worth 1,945,346. These guys need to step it up. Berzelius is a secret society at Yale University, named for the Swedish scientist Jan Jacob Berzelius, considered one of the founding fathers of modern chemistry. Founded in 1848, BZ, as the society is often called, is the third oldest society at Yale, and the oldest of those of the now-defunct Sheffield Scientific School, the institution which from 1854 to 1956 was the Sciences and Engineering College of Yale University. Its notable alumni include Bill DeWitt III, the president of the St. Louis Cardinals. Fairly quick search. I couldn't really find any more notable alumni from Berzelius, but I'm sure there are some. Here we have Wolfshead, filed under the Phelps Association. And they are worth 6,845,255. Wolf's Head was founded in 1883 by William Lyon Phelps. Fifteen rising seniors from the Yale Class of 1884, with help from members of the Yale Class of 1883, who were considered publicly possible taps for the older societies, abetted the creation of the third society. The Third Society changed its name to Wolf's Head five years later. Notable members Tom Steyer, American hedge fund magnate and liberal political activist David Josiah Brewer, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court Roger Morton, U.S. Representative, 22nd Secretary of Commerce and 39th Secretary of the Interior Malcolm Ballridge, Jr., former U.S. Secretary of Commerce, and Leigh Bardugo, Israeli-American author. Oh, there's one more here. Uh, Charles L. Bartlett, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. Now we come to Book and Snake, and it files under the Stone Trust Corporation, 5619120 Book and Snake was founded in 1863. Its notable alumni include Harvard Professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. and Charles Rifkin, U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Economic Business Affairs. Other notable members, Bob Woodward from the Washington Post, Les Aspen, former Secretary of Defense, Porter Goss, former Director of the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, and U.S. Congressman. Reed Hunt, former Chief Commissioner of Federal Communications Commission. Bill Nelson, National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA Administrator, nominated by President Biden, United States Senator from Florida. Also, it includes descendants of the Mayflower and Kathleen Cleaver, a founder of the Black Panthers. When a member of the society dies... The other members, then in the tomb, break the drinking glass of that person. Another secret society at Yale, St. Elmo's. And they have the St. Elmo Foundation, but I wasn't able to find out how much it's worth. Now, the St. Elmo Society is a secret society at Yale University founded in 1889 as an independent entity for seniors within the nationally chartered fraternity. Delta Phi Omicron Chapter. The Society's original clubhouse at 111 Grove Street was built in 1895. Before we get to the notable members, the last couple of weeks, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was listed as a member of the St. Elmo's Society, but then was taken off of Wikipedia and several other pages. People have been able to find it on the Wayback Machine, So I think it's kind of strange that he was taken off there. If you look at his career, though, he did have a very quick rise in his power once he graduated, went to the military, and then worked his way up to where he is now. So take that for what it is. Now, other notable members, John Ashcroft, the 79th United States Attorney General, Barrington Daniels Parker, a federal judge on the United States Court of Appeals. Ivan Obolinsky, naval pilot, publisher, vice president of Shields and & Company, and a longtime financial analyst, son of Prince Serge Obolinsky, a Russian prince and vice chairman of the board of Hilton Hotels Corporation, and grandson of John Jacob Astor. That guy's got quite the pedigree, right? Now, this one was my favorite, and if you've listened to my series called Those We Don't Speak Of, which is ongoing, there will be other episodes, I came across the Elizer Secret Society at Yale. Never heard of it, have you? Now, the Elizer Secret Society is now called Shabtai, and some of you know that Shabtai was a famous Jewish Hebrew... Messiah? They thought he was a Messiah. Thousands of people went to him to follow him. And he ended up going with the Muslims instead in the end. Shabtai Zvi. And also Shabtai, I believe, means Saturn. But it says, meet Elizer, the secret society at Yale that's hiding in plain sight. The secret lies in the private networking and intimate bonding among a cohesive Self-Selecting, Truly Diverse Membership. A list of who belongs to Elizer exists, but the contents are strictly off the record. Everything is word of mouth and by invitation only, not to exclude but to include the most interesting Yalies from over the walls of Yale's various courtyards, college, graduate schools, and faculty. Founded in the fall of 1996 by Rabbi Shmuley Hecht, Ben Karp, Corey Booker, and Michael Alexander as an intellectual salon and in Jewish leadership society. The group that started out as a social club for would-be and current leaders of Yale has blossomed into an organization recognized the world over, yet with a decidedly secular twist. There was no question that Elizer was a Jewish association, said the New York Times critic-at-large Edward Rothstein a member of the society, but also no question that along with its elements of religious observance and illusion, the Aura was non-sectarian intellectual. That was from Time magazine. Shabtai has deep connections to the Israeli political, military, and judicial figures and hosts regular off-the-record meetings on briefings on Israeli developments. Participants, many of whom have also been speakers and guests at Shabtai, include Arun Barak, Elakim Rubenstein, Hanan Melser, Ehud Barak, Yuval Steinitz, Alex Lubotsky, Yoav Gallant, Daniel Taub, Ron Prosar, Danny Dayan, Ido Aharoni, Gideon Meir, and Yaakov Amidror, as well as other individuals like Jalad Shalit. I'm sure I butchered those names, whatever. International Jewish leaders meet regularly with Shabtai members to inspire their participation and receive their guidance on critical issues facing global Jewry. These have included Aidan Steinsaltz, Ephraim Mervis, Yankee Tauber, Zvi Freeman, Emanuel Rogman, Shalom Dovber Lipskar, David Lincoln, James Pone, Jacob Emmanuel Schockett, Yitzchoff Kogan, Y.Y. Jacobson, and Favish Vogel as well as many others. So we'll look more into that group in the future as we do another episode on the intelligence connection to these Ivy League secret societies and fraternities. A casual mention here, in 1908, the Order of Myth and Sword was the latest secret society founded in the Sheffield Scientific School at Yale University in New Haven. The organization was first formed as Vernon Hall a three-year society bearing the Greek letters Phi Gamma Delta. This one I just threw in for the heck of it, Quill and Scroll. Quill and Scroll International Honorary Society for High School Journalists was organized April 10, 1926 at the University of Iowa by renowned pollster George H. Gallup and a group of high school advisors for the purpose of encouraging and recognizing individual student achievement in journalism and scholastic publication. Since its founding, school charters have been granted to more than 11,300 high schools in all 50 states, District of Columbia, and 29 foreign countries. There's also Princeton's Ivy Club. Famous members Lauren Bush Lauren, James Baker, Woodrow Wilson, and Michael Lewis. Cornell's Quill and Dagger. Cornell alums Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Janet Reno were made honorary members after their graduation. Famous members, Andre Belaz, Paul Wolfowitz. I believe he was in uh, one of the Bush's uh, administrations, maybe the first Bush, I can't remember. Charles Webb, author E.B. White. Lyft co-founder John Zimmer. I see here the Jewish Lyft co-founder donates 1 million to the ACLU to fight immigration ban also restaurateur drew neoporrent. and one of the last things i want to mention it may be just a coincidence but i think it's interesting and worth mentioning that such a pivotal event took place at a certain school in new haven a few years ago that went a long way to attacking the second amendment And this is also the same place, New Haven, known to be the home of the CFR founder and the assistant to Woodrow Wilson, where we got all the horrible, horrible policies, and one of the big proponents and creators of the League of Nations, Edward Mandel House. Now, there's no proof that he went to Skull and Bones. I think they would talk about it if he did he did go to yale and he was a very important figure in the early part of the 1900s the history there and his his influence is still felt today all one has to do is look at the influence of the council on foreign relations and what happened under the wilson administration with the well with the federal reserve and with the income tax, has to be the worst president in history. So maybe that's all just a coincidence, but Yale actually houses the library of Edward Mandel House. And for any of you newbies out there, he was not only the assistant to Wilson, and many say he was the brains behind that administration, but also he wrote a book called Philip Drew Administrator. While he was in that administration, and it was about a country ruled by communism. I think that's interesting that came out of Yale and all the things that have happened in that one area and why that one area for so, so very long has been so influential on America and even the world. All right, my friends, this wraps up The Order of Death Part 2. And I hope you got something valuable out of this, maybe gave you something to talk about to your family and friends and co-workers. You know, this subject is never going to be taught in mainstream education, even though many of the men, and now women, have been extremely influential to our country, our world, in both the public and private sectors. So some lughead, like me, has to tell people about it, and I'm just standing on the back's of people like Anthony C. Sutton and others who spread the word about the Order of Skull and Bones. Or maybe we're talking about the Pilgrim Society, a very similar group who has been very influential. Well, we have to talk about it and get the word out so we can understand history, really understand history. So kudos to you for listening and hanging out. And I wanted to thank my patrons, of course, but I also wanted to let you know I have added a couple of features if you decide to become a supporter of the show. In the two upper tiers, I've added something called The Odd Book Club, and it's something I'm going to be doing a couple times a month, maybe more, where I'm going to talk about a certain rare book and maybe read some excerpts from it and kind of talk about what it means, what it means to me, what it means to the present era, maybe talk about the author, a little bit, and just kind of help people to find these books that I think are important that they should have, you know, whether it's on PDF or Kindle or actually the paperback or hardback books, they should have in their collection to tell others about and maybe pass on to their family, friends, and others. So that is new. That's, like I said, under the two upper levels the co conspirator level and the producer level. Then on the regular Society of Cryptic Savants level, I'm actually adding something I'm going to be calling Terrible Tweets Tuesday. It's just something extra to say thank you that I'm going to be doing a couple times a month on Tuesdays. I'm going to look at Twitter. I'm going to pick out a few tweets and then talk about them for about 30, 45 minutes. So that will be something too extra to say thank you for supporting me. And with that being said, I want to thank my patrons. And I've got a new patron and a good friend, Ruckus, from The Daily Ruckus on Alternate Current Radio. Thank you, Ruckus, for joining the Odd Book Club. I want to encourage people to check out The Daily Ruckus and all of the other shows on AlternateCurrentRadio.com. And I also want you to check out a show that Ruckus co-hosts. It's called Joseph Arthur and His Technicolor Dreamcast. Joseph is really cool, and I'm actually going to be on there tonight to talk with him a little bit. And, you know, Joseph is a really good musician, and he likes to talk about music, but he also likes to talk about politics, which is very encouraging because I've been saying for years, you know, coming out of a, a rock band that almost everyone was just hardcore left, left-leaning, and, but they really didn't know anything. You know, they just kind of followed the mainstream news a little bit, if even at all. It was just kind of a given that they were liberal, And I think a lot of people are starting to realize, a lot of artists, that, wait a minute, what am I actually supporting here? So I am really encouraged that Joseph is doing that. So thank you, Ruckus, for being a supporter. Thank you to No Evil Shall I Fear very much for your kind gift. Thank you to Refsod. Thank you to Jay. Thank you to Chris. Thank you to Mark from Housatonic Live. He's got some great content. Please check out his wonderful YouTube page. Thank you, James. Thank you very much, Bill, for being a co-conspirator. Thank you, Peterson. Thank you, Rooster. Thank you, John Brisson from We've Read the Documents. Please check out his wonderful YouTube page as well. So much great content on there. Thank you to Greg. Thank you to the Mighty Kilowatt, Sir Tim of the Tunnels, Aaron, David, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. You better be listening to that show and subscribing on YouTube You're missing out if you aren't. Thank you to James. So guys, you may wonder, what am I working on now? What do we have next? And that is part two of the history of the Illuminati. And I've really pulled out some interesting stuff on this one. I'm really excited to get it out. We'll talk about the degrees and the rituals more, but we'll also talk about some more connections that are new to me. I think you'll find very interesting. And oh yeah, if you want to become a supporter of the Oddcast featuring the odd man out, then go to patreon.com forward slash the odd man out. And also please share the show, tell others about the show. It helps out a lot more than, you know, please try and support at least one or two shows out there that are trying to get the truth out. If you're able to in whatever way you can, because you know, we're up against the corporati, which is very, very powerful. And it's an international corporati. So much love to you guys. Cheers and blessings, and remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.
0: Dream with me of a shining gleam of daylight, over a darkened glimpse of midnight, of a chance to survive. Scream with me. When the reaper comes a-calling, when the cold rain is falling, when a youth has passed us by, evil may rip us to pieces while we sleep, cancer may rob us of our lives, sickness may ache, cause our hearts not to beat, but ongoing in. Our souls will survive Ongoing Our souls will survive Dream with me Of a peace that lasts forever Of a love to leave me never Of a sacred paradise Scream with me In the hopeless heart of terror When escape not in your favor When it's our turn to night Evil may rip us to pieces while we sleep Cancer may rob us of our lives Sickness may cause our hearts not to beat But on going, our souls will survive don't go in, our souls will survive.